Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. This is My Name Is My Name, an anomalous humanities podcast with APS. Thanks for tuning in to My Name Is My Name. Today I'll be talking to Adam Kotzko of Shimer College and Amin Forsyk, Twitter. To be honest, if you're listening to the show, you probably already know who Adam Kotzko is. show i talked to adam about his uh, life how he got into academia um the shape of his work why amongst the other fields that he engages with does he do so much work in theology even though he is not confessional and we also have a really good conversation about uh, pedagogy Uh, i have to apologize at the top here for some of the sound problems i was able to fix most of them but there were a few points where you can still hear some buzzing uh, which has to do with my now uh, dead laptop. But some of what Adam was saying during those sections was uh, really good, so I didn't want to cut it out. Um, So I hope that the annoying sound issues don't distract too much from the conversation. I had a lot of fun sitting down to talk with Adam. We've been friends for a really long time, and I know him as this really intelligent, uh, funny guy. And I think that comes across here in our conversation. Uh, When I was editing this, uh, I just kept bursting out laughing. It was like one in the morning, and I was sitting down in my living room just laughing maniacally as uh, I was listening to some of the jokes here. But usually behind those jokes, there's a a lot of, there's a real attention to the detail of the material that he's engaging with. There's a real sense that this stuff very much matters to him, that he takes thinking very seriously. So this uh, interview took place a few weeks back and uh, he does talk about um, going off to Birkbeck to participate in a conference um, there that was organized by Zizek around political theology. Uh, that did take place. Uh, you can go to Sick to read some of his reflections about that conference. And there will also be links on the Tumblr site to uh, his books. Despite his non-vegetarian ways, Adam does have an animal companion. Um, a big old dog named Max. Uh, You can hear him tapping around uh, in the background. Uh, At one point we tried to put him in a room, but you can also hear him whining on the tape. Um, So if you're wondering what that is, uh, it is Max, uh, Adam's dog that he very dutifully takes care of along with uh, his girlfriend. I don't have a lot to talk about up here up front. Things have been pretty crazy work-wise. I just finished uh, my final edits for the translation of Francois Laroel's uh, Introduction to Non-Marxism, which is now with the publisher, uh, Univocal, and they're starting to go through and get uh, the copy editing going. And I'm finishing up my summer course, which uh, has kind of taken a turn that I'm not entirely happy with. I knew going in focusing on Dan Barber's book on Diaspora, 
and then filling in the gaps with short readings from some of the figures he talks about, like Milbank and Zizek and Jakob Taubes and uh, St. Paul and also Daniel Boyerin. I knew going in that it was going to be pretty difficult for the students, but I was pretty impressed with them the first two or three weeks when uh, they were really engaging with the material. We were having great conversations. They were taking it very seriously. Then last night, I had three student presentations where it's just very clear that they hadn't actually done much in terms of preparation, and it was it was pretty disappointing. I know in part it's a summer thing, but it's coming off the back of a very difficult semester in terms of student engagement. And no one tells you when you go into university teaching how kind of personally you take it when they don't give a fuck about Malcolm X, they don't give a fuck about you know the, the way that Christianity uh, as a uh, discourse invents the discourse of religion. And I suppose it wouldn't bother me that much if it wasn't that I had to devote almost most of my time to preparing for teaching. You know, I could actually be working on this book that I'm a year behind on and that I'm escaping to the UK to finish up, or I could read one of the hundreds of books sitting on my shelf that I haven't been able to read yet. You know, I could do work that I think uh, matters, even if at the end of the day only a hundred people read it. At least I don't have to look those hundred people in their dead eyes as they express with their soullessness how little they give a shit. But the reality is I really do love teaching, uh, and this is just part of the job. You have to deal with how they don't think they care. You have to show them why they might care, uh, why they should be engaging with this very difficult material. Especially as they're told that it doesn't matter, and they're told that by the President of the United States of America. But all of it has me a little tired, so uh, I'm grumpy, which I know is surprising to hear. But as I said, I will be leaving for Liverpool uh, next Wednesday. This show is going up on Friday, June 20th, so I'll be leaving, uh, you know, the 25th. Hoping to get a number of interviews done while I'm out there. I am very concerned that uh, I have not had enough interviews with women or scholars of color yet. But hopefully I can rectify that while I'm in the UK, though it might require a trip down to London. Then I'll be heading over to Dublin, where we'll be doing the uh, Laruel in Translation Seminar Series, organized by Michael O'Rourke. Then the Mystical Theology and Continental Philosophy of Religion Conference in Liverpool. And then over to Berlin to see Dan and hopefully do some interviews over there as well. I haven't been to the UK in two years, so it'll be nice to revisit rainy fascism island. This weird place that I lived for five years that I have a pretty soft spot for, actually. Anyway, I'm starting to get anxious thinking about all the stuff I have to do. So let's get to the interview with Adam Kotzko. Yeah, I don't, I don't like prepare questions or anything. So, um, I've had like um, two. Um, my interview with Steven seemed to go well, but I did two like on the phone. Yeah. With like strangers. Yeah. And it was horrible. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> they didn't seem to understand what I was my responses like. Yeah. And, Everybody was just horrified. Everybody involved was just. Wait, did you do it on the radio or what? Yeah, I did one that was on, um, uh, like a public radio station in Berkeley. They wanted to ask about my uh, petition about okay. the White House. Yeah, and I think, like we were discussing on Twitter, I think it was just that I take the question and answer format too literally, <laughs> just like answer your question and then that's your question. Right. Um, 
So it'll pick you up a little bit better if you sit a little closer. That's good. Yeah, okay. that'll probably be fine. I, I don't want you to be uncomfortable, but yeah. Whatever happened with that petition? Did it... I don't know. I haven't looked at it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was hoping Justine Tooney would uh, pick up on it and to cry you, but I don't think it happened. It was never realistic to get many people to sign because of the necessity of making an account. Why did you do it? Why did I do the petition? Was it just a joke? Yeah. All right, so so you're Adam Kotzko of the famous tweet and of Shimer College. Um, what are you working on right now? Right now, I am working primarily on my long-promised book about the devil. Um, specifically, I'm working on polishing a, a piece that I'm going to be presenting at the Birkbeck Institute for Humanities um, next weekend. About uh, it's about political theology and how I think political theology is too focused on God and would be a more interesting and robust discourse if it broke that habit. And the best way of all to break that habit would be to do a political theology that starts from the devil. Huh. What, what, are you, uh, what are you thinking that conference is going to be like? Because uh, it's you, it's Zizek, it's Milbank, um, Tina, Tina Beattie, yeah, yeah. Um, and a, a couple other people, so she, she does kind of, you know, critical work in the Catholic church, but a lot of the other ones are kind of in the RO camp and then there's Zizek. How do you think that's yeah, going to play out? I feel out? as though my session is like the oddball session. Cause it's going to be me and Eric Santner and Enrique Dussel. Actually for me, the most exciting part about going to the conference is being able to meet Dussel. Yeah. But, um, uh, it's kind of like the the most uh, creative, active kind of Latin American liberation theologian, I think. But that kind of discourse is obviously at the margins of the political theology thing, unfortunately. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think it's because um, it, it's because of the perception that liberation theology failed, and presumably that must have been due to their ideas rather than the death squads and right. stuff. <laughs> Um, and also just, you know, political theology, uh, from its very inception has had a kind of reactionary cast to it due to the fact that the person who founded it was a huge Nazi. Um, and I think that people tend to get pulled in that direction. Like I, I read Schmidt's political theology as full of like really true and interesting statements that he then twists and like weaponizes towards his own somewhat insane agenda. What I want to do is really break with that agenda so that we can make use of his, um, his insights into the homologies between um, philosophy, theology, and politics. Um, That's cool. Did, did you get invited by Zizek? Yes. Okay. And uh, you don't you don't really like international travel. So uh, how long are you going to be over in London? I'm just going to be there for a few days. Actually, I'm I'm fl doing an overnight flight, um, and I have one day to myself on Thursday. I figure I'll uh, head to a museum or something, or get drinks with people. I'll probably be zombie-like, uh, but I'm I am getting much better about travel <laughs> lately. Um, I've done more traveling in the last six months than in the rest of my life combined, probably. Yeah. And is that, that 
So, so what's funny about even interviewing you is that you're probably one of the most, um, what would the word be? You've been blogging for like 15 years. Like people, people know who you are mm-hmm. uh, and people read about your life because you kind of seamlessly blend theory with um, kind of diary blogging. Um, so do you feel like these recent... Um, invitations to speak at Harvard and Birkbeck are coming from the traditional route of someone's read your book or do you think like social media internet has been a big part of that yeah I think that it's um, it can't be because of the social media stuff because that's been going on for so much longer than I've been getting these invitations Hmm. I think it it is a lot of just coincidences like um, like somebody read my Agamben translations, knew that I knew psychoanalysis, and that's what got me the invitation to speak at that Harvard group. Mm-hmm. Um, Zizek, um, you know, he obviously knows me and my work on theology and um, probably just wanted to help me out in some way by inviting me to this uh, conference since it was within my expertise. Yeah. Um, it does seem that for all of my hard work in developing this online persona, my traditional academic work actually is does more for my academic career that's that's probably good yes yeah otherwise it would uh, feel cheap yeah yeah but you you did take a a non-traditional route through academia for someone who's involved in pretty high level discourses you know um uh, working with people like eric santner zizek that's not normal for someone coming out of the the undergraduate institution that um, we shared. I went there for two years. You went there for four. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into academic work? Yeah. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I took a AP Lit class. And it was the first time that I was introduced to like the idea of literary criticism. Like I had written papers, obviously, but um, weirdly, it's thought that the best pedagogical method is to have students write a type of writing that they never see examples Mm. of. (laughs) Um, And so um, that and like just kind of it it really spurred my interest um, to engage in literary study specifically. Um, I was very naive when I applied to college. I was a first generation college student and just I knew I would get a very substantial scholarship to Olivet and it also seemed, for various personal reasons, like a kind of uh, path of least resistance. And so I went there intending um, to, you know, be on the path to being an academic in literature. Okay. And so while you were at Olivet, um, not to dwell too much into the past, but, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, what formed you while you were there? Do you feel like you're kind of self-formed or were there <coughs> people there that were helpful in in developing yourself as an intellectual i think a lot of it is kind of um due to self-motivation um i've i've noticed as i've been teaching at shimer college which requires me to teach in a lot of um, diverse areas that i really did get a great liberal arts education um whether that was due to the school or due to the fact that i was an obsessive person with a limited social life i'll leave (laughs) that to the listener to decide (laughs) Uh, but I, I was initially, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder about the institution too. And when I heard of Craig Keene and how transformative he was 
for Olivet students, my initial thought, because I was an asshole, was <laughs> Olivet students are stupid, and if they like him, it must not be for me. And it turned out when I finally broke down and um, you know took one of his classes that that was exactly the wrong uh, view of things. He really was challenging people, and... Um, and that was part of a transition for me where I was moving away from focusing on literature more towards philosophy and theology. And I chose theology as my home discipline um, because I saw that it was kind of at a center of a lot of interdisciplinary discourses. Like it's inherently interdisciplinary. It includes literature, history, philosophy. Like it's all yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things that we, you and I both kind of run into problems with is, you know, we, we work in this theological world, the world of religion, um, but, you know, like me, you're not really a religious studies person, even though you can probably dabble in that, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you're also not a confessional theologian. Um, have you found that difficult to deal with, or like in your own work, or just because of other people? Um, I think there... It's, uh, it's caused a lot of uh, conflict online, I would say. And those conflicts have died down as I have kind of stopped paying attention to them. <laughs> um, and, but in terms of my actual teaching and my work, I've never found it to be an obstacle to doing the things I really wanted to do. Mm. And especially now, um, my current teaching position, which again is... Um, not strictly disciplinary, and it requires me to do a, a ton of different things. That it's just not an issue. Yeah. Um, and I'm also I'm going to be teaching at um, Chicago Theological Seminary in the fall, um, and I think you know CTS or a mainline seminary, you know, assuming the luck of the draw came out right, would be um, a good place for me. And I don't think they would find it problematic that I am not personally biased. Yeah. So you're you're a professor of humanities at Right. Shimer, right. Okay. It's an envious title for many of us. Yeah, it's more of an end of career type of title, yeah. <laughs> but I skip right to it. That's good. Uh, and and you mentioned CTS. That's where you went for your PhD, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And who did you work with there, for people who don't know? I worked with Ted Jennings primarily, um, also with Laurel Schneider, Kwame Young So. Those were the ones that I um, engaged with most during my time there. Okay. And what particularly about CTS was important for your development in terms of your the ideas you've uh, been playing around with since then? Um, it was, in, in some ways, it was an attempt to keep continuity with what I had begun to do in dialogue with Craig Keene because he was close friends with Ted Jennings at that time um, and was also forced out of Olivet, and so I needed to find you know, somebody else to study with. Right. Um, and um, I think the, the biggest transformation for me wasn't so much in terms of the ideas. I think I would have studied like the same philosophical texts and stuff anywhere. It was more living in um, an intentionally diverse, progressive community um, that was um, more transformative for me. I think coming out of it of a conservative upbringing um, with, um, a, you know, and also as I mentioned previously, being an asshole. <laughs> that I had a kind of um, dismissiveness uh, for things that were unfamiliar and the dismissiveness of 
you know, identity politics, things like that. Right. But living in a community of people who would not let me get away with, you know, lazy bullshit on that was, um, was really transformative. And that's um, what's allowed me in my online persona to channel some of that assholishness at <laughs> um, white dudes, which is one of my major themes on the Twitter. Uh, yeah. And a lot of times people will then point out that you're a white dude. Right. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I take joy from that kind of uh, the fact that it frustrates them. Right. I must have touched a nerve. Right. So, um, because you do engage with a, a pretty traditional canon. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so your dissertation, for example, looking at the, the theme of uh, salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Or redemption. Um, you, you look at some classical theologians. Um, how, do you, how do you think that engaging with an intentionally diverse, uh, intentionally diversified group of uh, other graduate students helped you to read the canon differently than as just like a generic white Theo bro? Uh, right. Yeah, that um, I was in the situation where I couldn't afford, like most white dudes can, to simply ignore other voices. Like people in class and my professors and everybody was expecting me to engage with that stuff and take it seriously. And again, just wouldn't take any bullshit on that. And so while I did um, wind up working on more traditional texts, I think that that helped me to work in, on them in a, a less um, traditional way. Uh, you know, the, the cliche of reading against the grain. Mm-hmm. Um, in the intro to my um, dissertation, like it's all engaged with um, liberation theologies of various types. And then I have another chapter on like traditional interpretations where I just castigate them for misreading and missing things. And I think a a similar dynamic will happen in the devil book. Like um, for me, this idea of like uh, doing a political theology from below to use the title of the paper that I'm going to present, like, um, I draw a lot of inspiration from Catherine Keller's work uh, in Face of the Deep, where she um, tries to do theology starting from the primordial chaos rather than presupposing God. And, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so that book, uh, which is which is out with Conti- or TNT Clark, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's I learned a lot from it in terms of uh, uh, theologies of redemption, understanding what that what that what's at stake there. Um, and this is kind of going back to an earlier question, but what, what was at stake for you in writing that book? I mean, I used to joke that you were kind of like the Dr. House of theology because mm-hmm. you, you didn't care necessarily about the people. It was the problems that were interesting to you, um, which isn't entirely fair to you, but what, what do you think is at stake in, uh, for that book for you? Sometimes I joke that my field of study is things that sounded like a really good idea, but really, really weren't. Okay. And I think that in a way I have, I have this, this gut level emotional investment in figuring out, okay, what went wrong? Uh, there are various strategies for diagnosing what went wrong. Often one will um, scapegoat somebody from around the year 300 you know that's when christianity started to sell out in a very demonstrable way with constantine etc uh liberal christians will say it was saint paul who screwed everything up conservative christians say it was like the early people who came up with the idea of bishops and they were too catholic 
I'm open to the possibility that the whole thing was a bad idea from the <laughs> beginning. Um, but there's another angle to it, which is that I want to read the texts in a way that makes them interesting again. The way that people read them um, solely in terms of individualistic concern for salvation or combating that individual tendency um, by emphasizing, you know, like a kind of totalitarian church that we should all like absorb our identity into. Those are both, you know, destructive in various ways, but finally they're just boring yeah. solutions. And I thought that the kind of, um, you know, the social relational dynamics that I was detecting in those texts, even in the texts that don't want to be saying that, I thought that was a lot more interesting and worthy of talking about. Okay. So your work is very textually based. Yes. What, why do you think that is? I think it's because my initial intellectual formation was in literature and literary studies. Okay. So in terms of some of the new trends in continental philosophy or theory more generally, with uh, uh, thinking more in terms of uh, science and like what science has to tell us, where do you see yourself fitting in that uh, constellation? Or do you think that there's a problem with what, what those folks are doing? Yeah, a lot of it doesn't really... Um, grab me some of it seems to be fighting against straw men or just um, i understand that every generation of new thinkers needs to kind of kill the father and make room for their new thing and i'm i'm happy for them to do more with science if they're interested in science um, i may become more interested in science over the years too but um, i think it's a little bit reactionary and in terms of continental philosophy it loses some of the distinctive rigor that continental philosophy has. Um, I think it, um, partly due to the um, relative institutional weakness of continental styles of philosophy in the US, there's an understandable kind of analytic envy. Um, but I, I would fight against that tendency. Okay. Um. Since you've been talking a little bit about your own your own kind of formation as a as a student um, and uh, <laughs> that's a dog owner whose dog is drinking right now yeah um, <laughs> so uh, your own your own formation as a student and I know that you have been thinking a lot about pedagogy since you you've gone to Shimer um, are you finding that students read yes okay uh, do you think that's something that's specific to Scheimer's approach? Or... Yeah, I think that um, there are still students who don't read or don't always read. Um, and students develop various strategies for kind of bullshitting their way through. And, you know, sometimes I'm sure they, they fool us. I'm sure I've been fooled. But system-wide... I would say that the way it's set up is that you you have to do the reading yeah. or you're not going to get anything out of class and you're going to feel stupid, basically. Hmm. You have to have done the reading and have a baseline in it. Um, and that's, I think, in general with uh, Scheimer's model, which is entirely discussion-based, um, the one big benefit is that there's nowhere to hide. If you, right. if you do just sit there and not talk and just listen, it's going to hurt your grade. I mean, like... You're, um, you have to demonstrate that you're working. Um, and I think 
we're able to do this because we have 12 students maximum per class and obviously um, the dominant um, solutions in higher ed are not heading in that direction they're heading in just the opposite direction right um, and I think that it if students aren't reading I think it's um, in part the fault of the institution for setting up the pedagogical um, circumstances I remember when you first started teaching at Shimer that you, you said uh, it was a little bit difficult because you were used to lecturing. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you, well, one, would you talk a little bit about how you transitioned your pedagogy from lecturing to discussion-based and then um, uh, talk about how you see that in terms of uh, pedagogical theory? Do you think that's... Um, uh, you're doing something there in terms of forming students, or is it just a strategy in the classroom? When I first started teaching at Kalamazoo, I had gone through a teaching workshop. Um, a couple, of, you know, a couple of years of more lecture-based teaching helped me think about like what I want them to get out of the class, and like controlling the process uh, meant that I had to think about like what, okay, why are we reading this text? What, how does it contribute? And that set me up for then being able to think about it in a more dynamic way as I'm. As, as we're discussing, like I come in usually with a few passages that I want to want to point out. Students have said that I'm especially text centered in our very text centered <laughs> school. Um, uh, there are days where it's a slog. There are some days where like I've assigned too hard of a reading and they yeah. just don't know what to say. And I kind of have to carry the weight. But then there's also you ask the question about are we really shaping students? Like if you look at a first year Shimer class, then compare it to like this, even like second or third year students, like it's a world of difference. Mm. Um, and by the fourth year, um, they can, you know, they, they don't really need you to guide them and figure out how to learn together. They need your help for certain specific questions, but for like just the general direction of traffic and stuff like that, they know how to do this. They know how to learn through discussion by that point. There was even an unfortunate incident where one of my um, colleagues uh, had an emergency and was in was like two hours late for class but it was a senior class and after like five minutes they all just decided let's do this and right. just just did it and I think that that's uh, a testament to what we do at Shimer the kind of students were the kind of students we attract in the first place of course but also the kind of students that we're forming okay yeah, I'm a little envious, if I'm if I'm honest. I don't think my students will be listening to this, but uh, uh, you know, I, I taught a class recently on on Malcolm X, and I showed them a video, and uh, asked them a kind of leading question to get group discussion going, and they stared at me in silence for three minutes, and uh, as my my anger started to grow. Um, because I, I have learned to just sit with them in silence rather than try to fill it. Mm -hmm. um, so we just we just sit there, and I am hoping that they're getting uncomfortable, and I hope that they're trying to to think about well, what do I even think about this thing I just saw? Um, but they didn't do that, and so after about three three and a half minutes, I, I asked them if they had seen Treme, and of course none of them had seen Treme. Um, and so I explained, well, you know, there's this character who's a college professor and he, he teaches this book that he thinks is very good and none of his students care. And so one day he releases them early and he goes and kills himself. And right now, <laughs> right now you're making me want to jump out this fucking window. 
because uh, I teach on the third floor of this yeah. building. Um, you might not actually die if you jump. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Be careful. Yeah. Um, but this kind of frustration that people teaching at more traditional colleges and universities have where, you know, the humanities are declining in terms of uh, how many majors we can attract. Um, and then we so we have all these courses with people who are taking just general education requirements. And it becomes very difficult to try to get them to engage. Uh, have you thought about? Have you thought about that problem? Have you thought about um, uh, why the humanities are are declining? Uh, it's institutional choices that are making the humanities decline. When students hear from the very beginning of their college um, search that humanities are worthless and that they are never going to get a job, etc. Well, lo and behold, they believe it. You know, yeah. like the students who do stick with humanities tend to be very motivated and exceptional, um, whether, it be, you know, because they have this masochism or because they see through the propaganda. But like universities themselves are propagandizing against their own departments. Mm. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It, it, it goes back again to, um, you know, individual teachers can do a lot, but not you know not enough to like transform the whole situation like it's it's the entire institutional context that needs to support things mm -hmm. and you know what in the situation that you're describing they're setting teachers up for failure yeah and I, i've actually noticed it um <clears throat> in the social sciences even they're they're kind of not even encouraging people to go there and in the hard sciences uh, it tends to focus even more on uh, professional uh, professionalizing those disciplines. So no one's going into physics, for example. They're all going into biology as pre-med. Um, and it's, I don't know, I find it disturbing. I think it's uh, setting up a future in which, uh, in which even kind of under the capitalist regime, I don't see innovation happening out of that. I don't see, uh, I don't see, um, much good happening to, not to say anything about people's happiness either right i often i have kind of a running joke that um neoliberalism is basically just like 20th century communism repeated mm -hmm. and if you look at the history of the soviet union that's exactly what stalin did like they wanted to have very rapid economic growth um and so, you know, cut the extraneous departments, you know, like may retool everything to be very practical. And we all know that within a generation, they had kind of eaten their seed corn and they were like stuck in this cycle where they, um, um, even what they had so laboriously gained was like destroying itself. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that we would repeat that trajectory is literally insane. Like, I think that there's an element to neoliberalism that is simply insane. Mm. Like, um, it's no, no longer, oh, we should do capitalism because it benefits the human welfare. Like, we should do it because we should do it. Yeah. We need a market because we need a market. We need to compete so that we'll be competing. It, it's complete and total nihilism that is destroying everything of any value. I mean, I agree with you that it's, it's total nihilism. But um, there's a couple kind of attempts to retool different institutions. Um, so there's there was EGS earlier. Now there's the uh, exciting new graduate school uh, mm -hmm. trademark. Um, 
what what do you think are the problems with those institutions uh, in terms of responding to this prevailing this prevailing nihilism? Yeah, it it seems to me that they they play into kind of many of the worst tendencies of neoliberal education, um, a tendency to fixate exclusively on brand name like celebrity academics as though the end-all be-all of pedagogy is to have access Mm -hmm. to the great mind or whatever, um, even though that person is almost certainly not going to be engaging with you in a substantive way. Um, And also just the kind of, you know, low-cost massification of um, online courses. In my opinion, education is not an activity that can be scaled up it's yeah. an inherently one by one by one endeavor. If we want to increase um, people's access to education, we have to um, increase their access to authentic um, educators who are supported, who are able to live dignified lives. Um, and anything short of that is at best pointless. Mm-hmm. And at worst, actively harmful. So there's there's two things there. So you're saying educators have to have dignified lives. Um, I know one of the critiques that get leveled at us. Not only are we assholes, but we also live in ivory towers. Right. Um, and I'm, you know, I have a nice apartment. You have a nice apartment, but uh, we're not we're not living like kings for sure. Um, why do you think people have this perception that uh, a- that academics are not only middle class, but like upper class. I think there's a resentment um, because of the the fact that academia is one of those few jobs where you can you have the chance to get paid for something that seems meaningful. Mm. Employment is increasingly um, pointless and soul crushing for people, and they're doing their best to turn academia into that as well. And so anybody who has um, any type of um, autonomy in their work, any type of freedom, any time off at all, (laughs) things like this, people's reaction is not, wow, that's great. My job should be like that too. How could that happen? Instead, it's um, just resentment. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of people who the Academy has completely screwed over who are right to be resentful right that we could easily have been those people too it's just luck of the draw right right um and i don't there's a lot of um kind of political debates online about whether adjuncts and tenure track people should band together or i don't know the answer to that um but it's ridiculous for people to think that you and i are in this like mega elite that are totally out of touch yeah with everything it's it it's incomprehensible yeah um and then the other question i i was thinking of was uh you're talking about education as a good um what do you think the point of education is point of education is to live a better life to live more fully i'm especially um, prone to emphasize use your mind more fully Mm. and creatively Um, 
and I think that that's just an end in itself. Okay. Um, that, and I think that a lot of people, if you ask them, they would agree yeah. that it would be an end in itself, even if they might think it's a, it's a luxury we can afford to do without or whatever. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, uh, the connection between like radical politics, which you, you, you are interested in, in theories of radical politics and, mm-hmm. um, you've done a lot of work in economics and looking at various, um, various questions about injustice, but then also at the, uh, like you, you move past the rhetoric of, of inequality to you actually have a knowledge of the economic system that a lot of people in the humanities don't. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see any connection between education and radical politics? I think that, I mean, there's the obvious fact that radical politics needs a material base and, at least certain corners of academia are like the only place left yeah in a sense and there's a there to some extent it's a natural fit in that it's an intellectual theoretical activity um but i mean there's also some ways that it's an awkward fit because university despite what i was just saying earlier is kind of an inherently elitist Mm -hmm. you know throwback to aristocratic times etc yeah um it would be great, you know, in, in past eras, like labor unions had presses, mm-hmm. um, like they were able to support full-time activists and intellectuals um, and that were directly engaged with struggles um, in a way that it seems very difficult to imagine yeah. now. I don't think that simply teaching people more radical theory is going to solve that problem. Right. No, I agree with you. Um, I mean, one of the things though, that does bother me even with my own students, because I, I sometimes assign work that's uh, they say is too hard for them. I'm not assigning like the critique of pure reason. I'm talking, you know, um, Gutierrez's book on Job. Um, and they will say that this book is far too difficult for them to understand. Um, or even Malcolm X's autobiography. I had complaints that it was hard to read from students. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, it, it, it does it does disturb me in part because you know you just talked about uh, presses that unions used to have and this idea that like the common man um, doesn't have time for theoretical work it seems very elitist uh, right. because um, you know you and I are both first generation college students we're coming out of pretty working class families and um, I think my my family was intelligent they just weren't actualized they weren't trained in how to engage with texts right. Um, and I, I find it very disturbing, the kind of increasing elitism of universities, the kind of closing down of the, um, the, the democracy of education that was kind of coming about from this idea that all people had to go to college, but there's also kind of what's created this massive bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit, talking about online personas, uh, I did have people uh, on Twitter wanting me to ask you questions, and, and there was one that I thought was worthy of being asked. I'm not going to ask you about your spirit animal, um, <laughs> but uh, someone asked a little bit about the relationship between uh, your use of Twitter, which you're, you're pretty uh, prolific um, with, uh, and your engagement with uh, ancient texts. Um, do you see do you see online uh, online tools as being at all connecting up with your your academic interests 
Well, I mean, like all of us, I use online research tools a lot. I can't imagine how people did things before Google Books, <laughs> even with its manifest inadequacies. But um, I saw this question on Twitter. I kind of cheated by thinking about it ahead of time. Okay. And I think the phenomenon of the subtweet has been the most intellectually fruitful for me. Mm. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the lingo, that's uh, a tweet that is an unstated response to some other tweet. They just trust that the audience will know that that's who you're talking about yeah. in some way. And um, I was recently teaching a course where I did you know, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. And there are several points in John, like um, you know, he says things in different order, like it's a famous... Um, kind of thing in biblical studies how different john is from the other gospels yeah and i i didn't use this word but i was asking my students what if john is subtweeting luke <laughs> what if he's in some kind of like passive aggressive debate with luke but doesn't want to name him or doesn't want to say that that's what the argument is mm. and they found it to be a fruitful question um you know biblical studies people say well they didn't really know each other or whatever um, okay. But it's still an interesting way to read. Yes. Um, and that's, yeah, the kind of, and it's also given me a certain degree of humility because, like, if you look at a Twitter stream, like, everybody does this subtweeting thing. Everybody's responding to stuff that's kind of synchronous or just kind of around. Yeah. Um, that's just this vague context that if you're not kind of in the stream of stuff, you just wouldn't know. Yeah. Like this morning, all of a sudden, everybody on my feed, including me, started responding to this article that said that free speech was being stifled by students who were protesting commencement speakers. And we all came up with a lot of really funny jokes about it. We were all very profound. But it seemingly came out of nowhere if you didn't know this article had just come <laughs> out. And like, what if Paul's letters are like that? Like, to a extent, we know they are. Like he's responding to local problems and debates that we have no way... Yeah. of reconstructing and even i mean it would be um, very difficult for a future scholar even if they had access to every tweet ever to kind of reassemble that experience of what it was like to be in that like stream and riffing on this article um and even with that thorough of documentation like there's something irreducible about being there that we can never recapture um yeah like i say it's just kind of given me a Mm. a bit of a human uh greater humility in reading these texts you do spend a lot of time with sacred texts uh i remember we we were roommates for people listening um for a, a year of our lives um when you were doing your phd and i i was um uh finishing my undergrad at DePaul. um and i remember you you doing a lot of biblical studies work um and that's that's an area that i just I just have never been able to get into. Um, why do you think it's important to read these kind of ancient sacred texts in an increasingly kind of secularized age where even religious people, um, their engagement with these texts are usually very surface level, very, mm -hmm. um, uh, they're almost like repositories of, of folk wisdom um, rather than, you know, this kind of uh, text pregnant with, with meaning or potential. Um, why do you read it that way? I, I read it, um, I think in part, it, it comes from my own personal background. Like, I was one of those kids who um, was bored during the sermon and, like, started reading the Bible. <laughs> and 
there are parts in it that, you know, surprisingly are very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Like I was telling uh, my girlfriend, Natalie, about certain stories from the from the Book of Judges. And she said that we need to pitch a show to HBO that would be like <laughs> the Game of Thrones of the Bible. Okay. And it would totally be like people people who love Game of Thrones would be horrified and offended by the stuff that goes on in the Bible. Yeah. Um, so part of it is I just... Um, I, I find it genuinely interesting in a way that it just grabbed me at a young age. Um, and I think that, um, and I, I think it's also for me doing, you know, engaging so much with the Christian tradition, especially like it, it would be irresponsible for me not to have a thorough grounding in that. Although in institutional terms, theology and biblical studies have been kind of like separate silos for at least yeah. a generation. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm wanting to to branch out more. Um, I've done some work on Judaism, and I've been pressed into service to uh, teach a course on Islam oh, right, right. in the fall. So I've heard that the Quran is actually a lot of subtweeting too about <laughs> situ like they don't state is you know what situation the texts are responding to. You're just kind of supposed to know. So that'll be interesting to apply my Twitter skills. Okay, to that. <laughs> Well, another 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 um, uh, theorist philosopher who who uses a kind of similar technique is is Agamben, mm-hmm. who you started translating a couple of years back. Um, can you tell us about how you got into translating Agamben? Yeah, it, I mean, it goes it comes down to you know a need for procrastination, and sometimes you become desperate. Um, I was getting perilously close to um, finishing my dissertation and I needed some type of monkey wrench to throw in. And Agamben's book, The Kingdom and the Glory, came out in Italian and the University of Chicago Library, which was my primary research library, had it. So I checked out of the library, I bought an Italian grammar book, and I slogged through it. Um, You know, I taught myself Italian in order to read Agamben, basically. And it took forever for the translation to come out um, for various reasons. It's just a bear of a text. There are a lot of bibliographical issues. Yeah. Um, and so I approached Stanford, and I like posted online various like reading notes over the text as I was reading it. And I said, you know, I've, I've engaged with this. Do you need a translator? And they said, no, somebody's working on it. It's a little delayed. But we have this other um, shorter book that we need a translator for. Do you want to submit a sample translation for that and we'll see if you do a good enough job and then we'll Hmm. uh, set you up so i did a a a sample translation from the end of uh, the sacrament of language and that started my career as a as a translator Um, and then later they uh, tapped me again for two books that were closely related opus day which is about liturgy and highest poverty which is about monasticism and they wanted somebody who was very conversant with the theological literature to um, translate those texts, and so the rest is history. Now, how many how many have you done? I have I three books have been published. Um, I just finished up a draft of a, a much shorter text, uh, Pilate and Jesus. Um, it's about the trial of Jesus. It's about comparable to the the small book the the church and the kingdom that, okay. for those who are familiar and i also um, translated like one essay that was in an edited volume but my my big um you know my magnum opus as a translator is going to be the final volume of uh, 
the Homo Soccer series, uh, The Use of Bodies. Okay. Uh, which I'm going to be starting on uh, this summer and, and have contractually obligated myself to complete next summer. Okay. And how long is that? Um, it's, it's probably like 250 to 300. It's wow. similar to Kingdom and the Glory. Okay. That's going to be a big, big project. Yeah. Um, so I, I dabble in translating, um, and I sort of hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's moments in translating where like suddenly the veil is pulled back and you can, you can see like the matrix. Yeah. Um, but those are pretty few and far between. Is that your experience? Yeah, I think, um, I don't get as many of those veil moments because Agamben's style is purposely very straightforward. He's okay. not like Derrida. He's not trying to push the Italian language to its uttermost limits or right. anything. So in, on some levels, he's easy to translate. But then that means that the moments when he's suddenly not easy to translate are all the more jarring and yeah. disturbing. And you're just like, I thought I had a grasp on this. What the hell is going on? Okay. Yeah, there are those moments of humility or like tracking down a a citation and you just cannot find the passage that he's talking about. Yeah. Like, I mean, do you find that you have a, a sense of responsibility to the text that you don't with your own work or do you feel pretty unencumbered by that? Cause I mean, Agamben's more established. I, I translate Larry well, who um, seemingly everyone hates. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so I, I do feel this kind of responsibility to, to try and disseminate his work in a way that's more, helpful for seeing why it might be of use um but do you feel that way with agamben yeah it's interesting because the the kind of feel of translated agamben is already was already well established by the time i started yeah and i could kind of like imitate those types of cadences um uh and again since his one obstacle with laruel is frankly that his style is very off-putting which is not something that um, affects agamben as much but I do feel a responsibility. Um, I feel a responsibility to um, the publisher requires me to kind of enhance his um, citation practice. Oh. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is pretty common with European yeah. uh, texts. But in Pilate and Jesus, in the Italian text, um, he you know, cites a lot of Greek passages and he just keeps, does the bare minimum transliteration. Okay. Like doesn't include the breathing and the difference between long and short Mm -hmm. um, vowels. I went through and I added them all back in. (laughs) I added, I enhanced and made more (laughs) thorough his, and I like had out the Greek New Testament by my side, Mm -hmm. like painstakingly going through and like, oh, this is an Omega, not an Omicron. This is like, okay. So that must say something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's kind of similar to uh, when Alberto Toscano translated Logics of Worlds. Mm. Um, he, working with the Spanish translator, corrected some of the math. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, public knowledge, but uh, there wow. you go. Um, yeah, uh, but it was the same sort of thing where, like, um, just just a little bit sloppier than what a UP press might uh, right. might expect. Um yeah, so do you, did you translate Agamben out of any particular theo- theoretical uh, agreement with him, or was it just this kind of accident um, entirely, like you described? No, I think um, 
the goblins become increasingly central for me. Um, the reason that I um, was so excited about the Kingdom and the Glory is that he was engaging with the patristic and medieval texts that I was doing in my dissertation and that I felt relatively isolated. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of um, continental philosophy types who were doing Paul, but the later tradition, except maybe Augustine, was like kind of an unknown territory. Yeah. And I've um, found his way of kind of doing theology from within the tradition. It's not, it's creative. It's like working through the problems, like he said. Um, it's, it's imminent to the theological discourse, but it's also not confessional, clearly. He has something else in mind. Yeah. And the kind of promiscuity with which he's able to blend um, theology and philosophy, for me, was very exemplary. Um, that was one area that initially appealed to me about Zizek. And I think I started, um, to be less engaged with his work as he kind of lost hold of that or wasn't able to sustain it. Okay. Like I, I think at a moment in his work, what he was doing with theology was really central. And that's what I um, based my book Zizek and theology, um, around, but it seems as though it's become more, um, more more isolated within his project yeah. um, in the succeeding years. So Agamben has kind of taken up the the leading role for me theoretically since then. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I should have asked you about your Zizek book because uh, um, it's probably your most well-known. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Your pop culture stuff is probably slightly more well-known than the Zizek book, but the, the Zizek book is a, a really great introduction, um, and you, you don't artificially... Kind of bring in theology to it, uh, which which I found really useful. Um, a lot of the other texts, like the Deleuze and theology book, it's very, it's it's sort of a mess because they're just bringing in theology as a as a side thing. Whereas you were saying theology was central to to Zizek's project. Mm-hmm. Um, what was central about it? Well, central. Um, I was arguing that in the years that he started to um, engage with theology. It was around the same time he started to get very seriously involved with Elaine Badiou, too. Mm-hmm. And he, Badiou had used uh, St. Paul as a kind of experiment or laboratory for thinking through what a truth event looks like, uh, what a political movement that's not simply a repetition of the status quo would be like. And Zizek kind of wanted to retell Christian origins in his own way to kind of capture his own theory of the truth event. Um, he thought there were serious limitations to Badu's, uh, mm-hmm. that it didn't incorporate enough attention to the need for um, the negative gesture of a break okay. um, with the current order. Um, and I thought that he was, reading Zizek's early work, it seemed as though ideology was simply inescapable. You could rebel against it for a certain amount of time, and that was like authentic and beautiful, but you're always just going to wind up dying yeah and you wonder like well why would you rebel then uh why (laughs) would you valorize this right and he seemed to be for me through his attention to those early christian texts he seemed to be trying to push toward a vision of what a social link that was not simply a repetition of the structure of ideology would look like and um, I think that in his explicitly theological work, like even the very terrible uh, Monstrosity of Christ volume that he did with with Milbank, there's that last section that is worth the price of admission where he talks about like his ethics through oh, yeah. um, 
a kind of uh, Christian lens. And it seems like in his later work, he's kind of he's kind of lost sight of that. Maybe even as a problem. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I've I've always wondered what what his fascination with like uh, Chesterton has been. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, in the Monstrosity of Christ, he he engages with that Polish author, right? Uh-huh. Uh, is that the section you're talking about? Right. Yeah. It's. Um... Agatha Christoph, I believe is yeah, the name. Yeah. And it's a series of novels about these creepy twins right. who just kind of like ramble around and like they do whatever anybody asks of them, whether right. it's repulsive or whatever. And um, and he says, uh, in the end, uh, you know, this, this is how I would like to be, like an ethical monster. Right. <laughs> <And> I found <laughs> something very appealing about that it felt right it was the first thing i had read of his in a long time that felt new but also felt like recognizable like yes this is a genuine development of his thing yeah um is the i found less than nothing to be more of a kind of compilation um than a genuine reworking through everything but i mean that ethical monster thing that that sort of uh fits in with what you used to find attractive about paul Mm -hmm. right the idea that like you just do everything the law requires of you and then it can't require anything of you right yeah and that's kind of that was always my strategy um in life i like if you get your homework done and you do your chores people have no right to hassle you anymore <laughs> and that's what i you know i've like my entire life in a way has been structured around like being <laughs> nobody can hassle me uh, it, it sometimes gets pathological but yeah well you, you kind of bring that up in your awkwardness book mm-hmm. as well that that sort of ethical um paradigm um two questions how did you start writing about pop culture because uh, it seems for for some people looking at at your work or the trajectory of your work it might not seem like it 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 necessarily fits right. um, so how did you start writing about you know larry david as a messianic figure i think it was uh partly zizek was an inspiration i'm sure given that he does that kind of stuff all the time. It was partly that while I was in grad school, I watched a ton of TV (laughs) and I have a kind of, you know, use the whole Buffalo approach. Um, And so I, uh, you know, I started reflecting on kind of in blog posts and stuff. And um, the awkwardness book, as I say in the intro, started off as a joke where I was claiming that awkwardness was one of the fundamental attunements of Dasein, you know, alongside anxiety and boredom. And Mm -hmm. as I thought about it, I was wait, this could actually be true. <laughs> and so I wrote the, the book kind of, um, it, it was, it wasn't really a thorough study of awkward humor. I think yeah. that the format of it is kind of weird and confusing to people. They don't really, you know, why did you leave this out? Why did you not talk? But I was trying to cut a certain path through the material that would get me to like a moment of like redemptive, authentic awkwardness that wasn't mm. felt as a burden. That was like, it, like the the guiding question is if it's so uncomfortable and painful why do we laugh why right. do we enjoy it there must be something hopeful here and try to isolate that element and for me that was the scene in curb your enthusiasm where there's a chef who has Tourette's and he has an outburst at the fancy restaurant and then larry out of solidarity with him like starts cur- shouting out curse words uh, <laughs> as well as though this is a normal thing and then everybody starts doing it and um, I thought that was a moment of kind of, you know, an ethical monstrosity that yeah. turned out to be 
obviously very infectious and appealing. And then the next book was on uh, psychopaths. Mm -hmm. um, what what led you from awkwardness to psychopaths? Um, another joke, actually. Um, <laughs> a, a colleague of ours um, had recently said that he was planning to write uh, a trilogy of books. And I had a certain amount of skepticism about this project. <laughs> and... I was telling Natalie about it, and I joked, um, you know, I should write a trilogy. If this guy can write a trilogy, I can write a trilogy. I'll do awkwardness, creepiness, and sociopaths. Oh, sociopaths. You know, My just bad. doing yeah. negative character traits and just upping the ante each time. The sociopaths one seemed more um, timely and more, like, I just had more material, frankly, because literally every you know high quality tv show is like oh this tortured anti-hero like, right um and yeah so i did it just kind of as a because i had the idea and yeah. didn't want to waste the idea but it still does have a theological connection because at the end i say that the most authentic sociopath is jesus <laughs> <laughs> all right all right and so i'm this summer actually um I'm going to try to work up a couple chapters of the devil book and like put together a proposal for a publisher. Um, but since I'm teaching the course on it in the fall, I kind of want to hold off on writing further until I've had a chance to work through it with the students and everything. And so during my ample free time, I will, I'll probably churn out creepiness, the final volume of, yeah. the, of the trilogy, um, which seems like it has the potential to be the most popular. Okay. Weirdly. And, and who are you thinking about talking in there? Um, I kind of want to talk about, I want to make it continuous with the other book. And so I'll talk about how Don Draper and Walter White have like turned creepy over the course of their respective shows. Mm. Um, like what is it about you, these, these shows, they, they work by seducing you into sympathizing with the evil character, then they punish you for it. And it seems like increasingly the way they punish you for it is by turning him into a creep. Yeah. Um, and then, like, what do we fear about creepiness? You know, um, uh, this kind of thing. I'll, I'll have to talk about Adult Swim cartoons. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> the, I mean, the material is a lot thinner because, you know, creepiness is a lot more genuinely kind of edgy and hard yeah. to watch. Um, and although um, there are the Burger King commercials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... So I was like watching TV the other day and, and all the commercials coming up. Um, they're just insane. Like commercials don't make sense anymore. The, the one that really, okay, there's two commercials right now that are driving me crazy. I don't know if these are creepy or not, but, but they are, they, they have to be a symptom of our decline or something. Absolutely. Um, the one for the car, I can't even remember the name of the car, with the hamsters. Have you seen this? Oh, and they're like walk down the red carpet at the end. Yeah, that one. That one's a that one's a sequel. The original one is there's an opera in like 17th century or 18th century France, and then suddenly some of the people in the opera rip off their human skin to reveal that they are hip hop hamsters, and they start doing a hip hop dance, and then the car shows up, and they all get in it, and it flies into uh, like space. Um, and then that one's the sequel, but then the other one is the AT and T uh, friends and family commercials where there's like a, a again a hamster in a ball, and then and he's like the dad, 
and then um, Judy Greer is like a mom, and then there's like a French girl. And a, have you seen this? The the premise being that you can add anybody to your your so called your, your family. Your yeah, family, family. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's these commercials drive me mad at night. Like I I can't stop thinking about them. Um, I watch a lot of Hulu, and they play the same commercials over and over and over and over. Like I could write an entire dissertation on one of those commercials. I've analyzed every. <laughs> second of you know those since we're talking about commercials you know yeah. the ones where they have the it's like the guy is having the focus group with the kindergarten class yeah and he asks, what what do you think more is better or less and they yeah. like think more is better and uh the if you if you see one of these commercials watch the other kids who aren't like the cute one who's talking like yeah. they're just so bored and yeah. they're just like a wanting to wander off it's actually like a whole different experience uh sounds the uncanny so excess of commercials. So is that guy creepy? I think... Because um, usually we think of creepy just in the sexualized way. But but there is something weird about that patronizing uh, thing with kids. Uh, you're not on Facebook, but you see it a lot with like parents on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So like right now, um, there's a trend of, of parents drawing eyebrows on their babies um, to make them look weird. Um, and, and like people love it and because I'm a, you know, a hateful man, I'm, I always find it a little bit annoying. Yeah. It's funny. Um, but is that creepy? That sort of stuff? Yeah. I think there's something inherently creepy about kids too. Just like these, it's, it's like they're this, this is other species that lives among us and but we could never talk about that though. Yeah. Their standards and their desires, what yeah. they think is normal and acceptable. It's totally incompatible with us. And yet they, they walk among us every day. <laughs> it's creepy. It's also kind of creepy, you know, that we just keep dogs and cats in the house to have around. That's weird. That is really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some of them like it. Sure. That, that leads to some questionable, uh, you know, I'm sure some posthumanists would take uh, umbrage at my saying that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I don't think I have any more questions for you. Okay. Um, do you feel like we talked about enough? Seems like we've covered most of your academic life. Basically all of it. All right. Well, good luck in London. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Adam Kotzko. Be looking for the third installment in his pop culture series, Creepiness, which will be out with zero books, I believe. Uh, as well as some of the new Agamben translations that should be coming out uh, within the next year. As always, you can leave comments on the Tumblr site. Uh, please send me recommendations for people you think I should interview, especially when I'm in the UK. If anyone knows anyone in Liverpool, uh, please recommend them. Or if you just know good places to drink, recommend those. Oh, man, I got a pack. So much to write. Uh, I'm not going to be able to see all my friends. They're going to be mad at me. Well, it doesn't matter. Just remember, whatever the world throws at you, your name is your name. <laughs>